You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. I've always emphasized recovery and rest and you know, easy workouts and such with my, with my athletes over the years. They almost always fought me on that. Athletes don't like to take easy days or take days off. They like to push themselves to their limits. But I always believe that was what the key to performance was how, how good a job you did of recovering from workouts. That was Joe Frell. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hi, and welcome to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. I'm also a triathlete, runner, yogi, and founder of the brand strategy and communications consulting agency, The Salop Group, and co-founder of fitness and wellness digital and experiential content company, Fit Plus Love. I loved talking to today's guest, Joe Frell, co-founder of Training Peaks, world-renowned author and top endurance sports coach. Before we get started, I wanted to thank our sponsors, Mad Ritual CBD, but more about their amazing products later. And stay tuned for our shop code. Now, about Joe. Joe Frell is a lifelong athlete with over four decades of coaching amateur and professional athletes in a range of endurance sports. In 1999, he took his coaching to the next level and digitized it thanks to his son, Dirk Frell, and Dirk's friend, Gear Fisher. If you haven't already heard, Dirk was recently on the Marnie on the Move podcast released on July 22nd, 2020. It's a deep dive into training peaks, all of the incredible features of this digital platform, and of course, Dirk's pro cycling career. Back to Joe Frell. I first discovered Joe Frell back in 2011 when I started training for triathlons. I bought his world famous book, The Triathlon Training Bible, and it truly was my triathlon training Bible. This was his second of over 14 books, and his new book, Ride Inside, is out this month. You can pre-order it on VeloPress, Perfect timing, as many of us have been riding inside these past few months on Zwift, Peloton, and Ruby. Joe Frell is one of the most trusted endurance sports coaches in the world. His books have helped cyclists, triathletes, masters athletes, novices, and pros reach their training and racing goals. His training Bible books for road cyclists, mountain bikers, and triathletes are also, besides being used by athletes, used by several national sports federations to train their coaches. A few of his best-selling titles include Fast After 50, The Power Meter Handbook, and Going Long. On this episode of Marnie on the Move, I sync up with Joe about his new book and discover some really great training tips for riding indoors. Of course, I get the inside scoop on where training, coaching, and training peaks began. Joe shares a few of his core training principles and philosophies. We talk about the coaching and virtual workshops he has been offering to triathlon clubs during COVID. We also sync up about his favorite Olympic distance race series, USTS, the importance of rest, recovery, and easy training days. And he shares a few secrets to success for training and racing as we age. You will be inspired and ready to get moving. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple. It's easy. Head over to the app, scroll through the Marnie on the Move episodes, click on five stars, and write your review. Also, follow us on social, on Instagram at Marnie on the Move, on Facebook at Marnie on the Move, and on LinkedIn, Marnie Salop. If you love what you hear, share the conversations on your Instagram stories and tag us. As always, feel free to email me directly with guest ideas or questions, Marnie on the Move one at Gmail. Now, on to our show. Today's episode is fueled by Mad Ritual CBD. Mad Ritual CBD has changed my recovery game in a really big way. Get ready to recover like a rebel with these awesome, high quality CBD infused products. Their CBD balm is off the charts amazing. And I'm not the only one that thinks so. Mad Ritual has 100 plus five star reviews. 
The balms have five simple organic ingredients, coconut oil, shea butter, olive oil, plant wax, CBD, and different blends of essential oils. Personally, I prefer the eucalyptus and peppermint. They also offer a terrific CBD-infused total recovery supplement. Not just for athletes, the products are formulated to ease all of the aches and pains that come along with being an active human. So, if you are sore from life, Mad Ritual gets it. Founded by women athletes and active entrepreneurs, they are committed to helping active folks bring more balance to their lives. Mad Ritual is offering Marnie on the Move listeners 15% off. Head over to their website, madritual.com, and use the code Marnie on the Move. Now, on to the episode. Where are you based? I'm in uh, northern Arizona, a little town called Sedona. A beautiful city, small town, it's one of 10,000 people live here. But we're surrounded by these gigantic red rock mountains. It's like mountain bikers heaven. Cars here, you know, vans and such. Every day, we have like 10 to 20,000 people a day in town. Most of them mountain biking and hiking. Just a beautiful place. That's amazing. Do you even feel the COVID climate that's happening right now, or you're not, not really? No, you know, my life really hasn't changed at all. We've, we've never been restricted on riding or working out outside. Pools are closed and gyms are closed, but I've got my own gym in my house. And so consequently, I've been doing what I normally do. Nothing has really changed at all. Yeah, I like it's sort of changed for me, just like with the pool and the swimming, but I'm usually like outside exercising. Yeah, me too. I just mean that. Yeah, you've been coaching and training for 40 years. Yeah, it actually started before that. I I was a high school track and field coach also for about, oh, about eight, eight or nine years, I guess. You are a lifelong athlete. Where did your journey into athletics begin? Well, it started when I was in junior high school. I ran track and field and uh, kind of fell in love with the idea of, of having fitness. And I just enjoyed being around other athletes. And uh, my coach was a great guy and enjoyed working with him. And so it just kind of like everything fell together for me to, at the right place at the right time when I was, gosh, I must have been about, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, I suppose. Did your parents encourage you to join the track team? Where did it all start? No, I, I did entirely on my own. My my parents had absolutely no interest in sports whatsoever, never have, never did have, and they never understood when I became a, a coach. My mother was always concerned that I was not going to make it in life because I was not doing a normal job. It was something kind of weird, which she didn't understand, so therefore it must not be a good moneymaker, she assumed. Right. So she was always concerned about my, my income, which was never a problem, but Nevertheless, uh, it, it was all my own idea, just something that was right for me. Where did coaching begin for you? Well, it actually started when I was in high school, probably about my sophomore year in high school. We had a, uh, a new coach uh, come on staff, the faculty at school I was at, and he was, had just graduated from college. So he was probably at that time was about, about seven years older than me. So I related to him quite well. He became like a second father for me. Um, had a very close relationship. He turned out to be an excellent coach. Paid a lot of attention to me and and, and uh, began to involve me in some of the coaching processes, things that you know he was doing and his assistant coaches were doing. He would involve me and ask me to help out in some way. And so kind of from a very early age, when I was probably, I don't know, around 15 or so, maybe 16, I was becoming an assistant coach for this for this guy who came on on the staff, uh, and he's still around. He's you know I saw a picture. Of him. I haven't talked to him in decades, but I just saw a picture of him online the other day. And you know he's just seven years older than me, so we're really not all that much different in age now. But back then, of course, he was uh, considerably you know perceived to be much older than me. But he was but he was uh, just a great role model for me. Always always was. What was his I, name? His name was Leonard Scotton. He's retired now, of course, but uh, just a great guy. And where did you go? Where were you going to high school? Like, where did you grow up? I grew up in Indiana, a little town just south of Indianapolis called Greenwood. It, it's a very tiny little town when I lived there. Probably only had, I don't know, two or 3,000 people living there. Farming community, um, you know, one stoplight, you know, one intersection in town. But lots of places to play as a kid. It's just 
open fields and forests and all kinds of things. So it made for a fun time as a kid. Yeah. So track and field, you were coaching at your high school. Did you coach into college? Like, did you, when, when did you start coaching triathlon? Oh, triathlon started actually about 1982. In 1980, I opened a running store in Colorado. By that time, we had moved from Indiana, my wife and I. And uh, so opened a running store. I had a master's in exercise uh, science. And so I always had uh, athletes, runners, come in the store asking me questions about how to train for a marathon or 10K or whatever. And the store started to grow. We had a, our number of customers began to grow quite nicely. And so I had to hire cus- uh, employees to work with me. And so I hired mostly runners, but I hired a couple of triathletes to work for me also. And they started talking about triathlon all the time. So they kind of gave me the bug to try it. So I tried it in 1983 and fell in love with it. And uh, so I'd been coaching runners up until that point. So in 1983, I started coaching uh, triathletes. And then cyclists came along about a little bit later. And that cyclist came on board also with me because I bought the bike store next to my next to my running store. So I was kind of involved in all three sports from um, about 19, well, 1980s when I started coaching runners. So about that time on, yeah, I was coaching runners and triathletes and then cyclists. What was your first triathlon that you did? There was a small race. It was kind of not, not exactly, it was longer than sprint distance, but not quite Olympic distance in a little town not too far from where we lived in Colorado called Longmont, Longmont, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And they had a they were one of the they had one of the first triathlons in the country, which is started I think in 1980 or 81. It's the first time they they held the race. So in '83, I did that as my first race. It was a pool swim. I think it was like a thousand meter pool swim, and then like a 20 mile bike and a five mile run or something like that. And so I had a great time. I just was really fell in love with the sports. Just from trying it out, I fell in love and became a a full-fledged triathlete from that moment on. How many races have you done? Do you know? I mean, <laughs> gosh, I don't know. <laughs> I know. I like. I, I just had to look it up the other day for myself because yeah. I was asking people. I was just curious. I mean, I think I've done like, I've never done an Ironman. I've done. I think I've done fourteen triathlons, and it could be fifteen or sixteen. I may have forgotten one or two, and uh-huh. I've definitely completed about seven. 70.3s. My races were my favorite race. Every time I do a race, Ironman cancels it. So let's just start there. <laughs> I, told, I told Andrew Messick when I interviewed him, I'm like, I'm not going to do, if you have a race that you want to cancel, just tell me and I'll come do it. <laughs> just to make sure. Because I can't PR. It's so frustrating. But anyway, oh, like I did, t- I did actually do Timberman um, two or three times. My last 70.3 was in Connecticut when they took over, when Ironman took over the race from Rev3, the quasi race in Connecticut, which is like one of my favorite races. And I did it for the first time as a 70.3. And I think I died on the run, like Uh. (laughs) mile six. Oh, I understand. Yeah, it was fun, but I love, I mean, I would, I would do it again, of course. But yeah, I've done a couple. I love that distance. I think that's my favorite distance. And then this year I did my first marathon. So I like to ask people like, how many races have you done? And like, what are some of your favorites? Cause I feel like the races really tell a story. Yeah. I really have no idea what the number of races I've done is I've done. I never stopped. Even when I was a triathlete, I never stopped doing running races. I did marathons and so forth, halves and 10 Ks and so forth. And then even when I was a triathlete, I took up bike road racing. So I was doing, you know, all several sports, they all overlap, obviously, with triathlon. So I was, I was doing races in multi, in, in many different sports. But as far as triathlon, my favorites I have to go back to the 1980s. There was a, a race series in the 1980s called the USTS, United States Triathlon Series. And that was a big deal. It was actually a bigger deal than Ironman was back in the 80s. Yeah, this is what started the, the Olympic distance that we st- t- take as a standard distance now. That that came about because of the USTS series. Uh, they designed, you know, they came up with a 1,500 meter 40K, 10K event. And they did them from about probably about 85 until around 90, something like that. And around 87, they had, and they, and they had races all over the country. Every major city in the country had a race. The races were big, 1,000 plus people at every race. About 87, 
they started a, a thing where they had prize money for masters. And I was a, a masters. I qualified at that time, 40 plus. And so I started going around the country racing masters in USTS. And that was as much fun as ever, I've ever had in sport was doing that because, you know, the money wasn't a big deal. I don't recall what it was now, 150 bucks or something like that for winning, which is not really the reason you go to race, but there was something about it since we were all old guys racing that made it something that seemed like more fun and more challenging. So that was my favorite races were all those races I did back in the late 80s. Yeah. And you've coached so many athletes for the past 40 years. Are you still coaching? No, I'm kind of taking a a break from coaching right now. I've written a number of books just in the last few years. and I realized it's hard to to do both of those things. So I I cut back way back on my coaching, finally to stop coaching altogether so I could get more focused on writing. And, you know, I've never really decided whether I'm a coach who writes books or an author who coaches. I kind of like enjoy doing both things and they're both a lot of fun for me. I just like both of them. We just maybe can't do them all focused at the same time, right? I mean, that's like anything that you do. You have to focus at some point. Was your first book the Triathlete's Training Bible? No, the first book was the Cyclist's Training Bible. That was about 96 or 90, I think about 96. And then the Triathlete's Training Bible was the third book I wrote, which is about 98. Yeah, that's the one I read that I love. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that was the first one that came out. That's, you know, that book has gone through a lot of changes since then. After all your coaching and all of the books and articles that you've written and athletes that you've coached and races that you've done, are there any, what are some of your tried and true training philosophies that have endured the evolution of training and sports? I've always emphasized recovery and rest and, you know, easy workouts and such with my, with my athletes over the years. They almost always fought me on that. Athletes don't like to take easy days or take days off. They like to push themselves to their limits. But I always believe that was what the key to performance was how, how good a job you did of recovering from workouts. For example, I had one guy who was wanting to qualify for the uh, 2000 Olympics in, in Sydney, uh, triathlon. I started coaching him in 97. So we had better than two years of getting ready for the, to qualify, which he did, by the way, qualified. He kept getting run down all the time. You know, most, most pro triathletes in that age category, that group of Olympic caliber athletes are training 25, 30 hours a week, sometimes more. Right. And we pretty much started off that same way. He, he was around 25 hours per week. But then I realized he just wasn't responding. In fact, he was having lots of illnesses and upper respiratory stuff that was going on with him. So I began to cut his training back. And eventually he was training about 17 hours a week. And he still went on to qualify. He was probably trained fewer hours than anybody else in the Olympics that year, as far as triathlon was concerned. 17 hours per week for an elite athlete is next to nothing. But, you know, he thrived on on high intensity and we took very, very easy days and days off. And he really came on very nicely because of that. I think a lot of people take recovery and rest for granted and, and especially zone two training because a lot of athletes want to go fast or they want to be fast. And so it took me years to kind of wrap my head around it. It's a big challenge to just chill out and relax and not go hard all the time. Yeah, there's this thing that uh, Stephen Seiler has been working on for the last 15, 16 years. And polarization of training, the 80-20 concept Yes, is really a great idea, but people just don't want to do it. I, I did a, I'm doing clinics right now for uh, Zoom clinics for clubs around the world. And I was speaking to a club last night in LA, the tri-club in LA. I'd mentioned that, you know, that was one of the best things they could do, but I know you won't do it because nobody wants to go easy. But so I told them about Gwen Jorgensen, who won the gold medal in in, uh, uh, triathlon, women's triathlon in 2016. Mm -hmm. She had started, she had started doing polarized training in 2015. And she talked about how her average running pace dropped over the next several months on average she was running slower than she ever had however she was racing faster than she ever had also and that that's the bottom line is it's not you're not doing this just to kind of mark up an easy workout you're doing it because it's going to make you faster in the long run for for many for a number of reasons but she was a good example of what can be done if you really make sure you keep the easy workouts easy most people think that if they go just a little bit harder if they go three zone 
in their workouts, that'll be better than if they go one zone, but it's right. not. Three zone doesn't make you any faster. One zone actually makes you faster because of the benefits you get that, that come out of going easy. So the 80-20 philosophy is 80% zone two easy and 20% intense. Is that the philosophy? It's actually more like zone one. It's more zone one and just a little bit of zone two. It's activity which is right around your aerobic threshold. So then we get down to and start talking about zones. You have to decide whose zone system are we talking about. Right. In, in my zone system, zone two starts at about your aerobic threshold. So zone one is below the aerobic threshold in my system, and zone two is slightly above it. So if you're saying, like I, what I have athletes try to do is do workouts right around their aerobic threshold which is just slightly slightly into the zone two area and also slightly into the zone one area. So it's just kind of like on that threshold between the two zones. Interesting. I know you have on the Training Peaks website, there's a lot of articles that you've written where you have all the tests that you can do also to figure out your zones based on your system. Right, it's true. There's different systems that people use for figuring out your zones. Exactly. I guess it depends on who you are, right? Like a marathon could be zone two, but if you're a professional athlete, zone four, yeah. Yeah, so. you've raced in zone four in that case. So, so it, you know, it depends on how there's an inverse relationship between duration and intensity. As duration increases, in other words, you go from 5K to 10K to half marathon to marathon, as you increase the duration, the intensity goes down. So you, obviously you cannot run a marathon at your 5K pace. So, so those two things are always working in opposites. So as soon as you make the workout or race longer, the intensity has to go down to accommodate that greater duration. So the overall idea is to get your heart to be in a, a lower zone, but your pace to be faster in that zone. Yeah, the idea is, is to go as fast as you can at a low heart rate. That would be, that's the ultimate goal of endurance athlete. That's what I call the efficiency factor. It's just how efficient are you? What's, what's your output? Your, your, how fast do you run? Your pace? or your power on a bike, that's output. And your input is your heart rate or breathing or what you're experiencing as far as the way you feel. Those are inputs. Right. So you're, when you compare input and output, that's called, that's efficiency. If you look at what the definition of efficiency in the dictionary, that's basically what they're going to say to you. It's input compared to the output. Right. And so what we're trying to do is get the athlete to have as high an efficiency factor as possible. In other words, as much speed as possible for a given heart rate or as much power as possible for a given heart rate. And you want those things to always be moving apart as you possibly can. So your fitness is becoming greater, greater output for the same input. And what do you think about like how long it takes to really accomplish that goal? Uh, it depends a lot on the individual. On average, it's about six weeks to see an improvement. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you're going to be, that doesn't mean your, your plateau as high as you're ever going to be. It just means that to measure the, the change that's taking place it takes roughly six weeks on average. But some people, mostly elite athletes, can see the same amount of change perhaps in four weeks. Right. Whereas some people, it's going to be eight weeks before they see the same benefit that other people saw in six weeks. So it's a very individualized. I mean, we are unique when it comes to this sort of thing. So there's not a flat answer right. for everybody. But on average, six weeks see measurable improvement in fitness. For example, I did my first marathon. So huh? I'm training for my first marathon and I, it totally sucked. Like my time was so slow. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but it was my first marathon and I'm okay sure. with it. Right. Yeah. If I want to qualify for Boston, like that is not a six month plan unless I'm going to be like just working out every single day training. And even then it wouldn't happen. So I'm 48 and huh? my pace was, it was also, it was like 5.15 for the marathon in New York City, but also I had a horrible cough during the race. It is what it is, right? So my time was 5.15. Normally it would have been probably like 4.45. That was what I was training at. And so I was like, oh, I want to qualify for Boston. Like it's not going to be that hard. I just have to do like 3.50. Uh -huh. So... <laughs> You know, I've got to shave like an hour and 15 minutes off my time, let's say, hypothetically, yeah. at least. So it's not going to take me one year to do that, right? Or could it? Is it possible? Well, I, I can't say for sure. It depends on what your potential is. I, I right. have no idea what your potential is. That has that comes down to things such as, you know, what's your VO2 max? Is 
and what you, you mentioned you were sick, you had a bad cough yeah. associated with the race. And that, you know, that had to have an impact on performance also. What can you do when you're, when you're not sick? Well, these are all questions I can't answer. It's only, only you or your coach could answer the, right. the details on that kind of stuff. So it, it could be much less than a year. It could be longer than that. Just, I just don't know. It's really individual, the amount of time it takes and it also oh, yeah. like what your goals are. You bet. You've written so many books and you have coached so many athletes. So when did you launch Training Peaks and where did it begin? I started in uh, 1999. I had a coaching company with several coaches around the country working for me. And it was growing very nicely. And over the last several years, up until 1999, we've been communicating with athletes in traditional ways, which is telephone, uh, U.S. postal mail, um, faxes, back and forth with clients. We were just starting to use email about that time. So we're using pretty much traditional ways of communicating uh, prior to the internet. That's what we were basically doing. Right. And uh, I, I hired my son um, in 90, about 98, to come to work for my company as a coach. He was a former pro road cyclist who raced in Europe. I had a good career there, and he came back and raced in the U.S. as a pro. And by the late 90s, he was starting to look for things he could do besides racing. So he came on as a coach, and he was appalled at how we communicate with people. He said, there has to be, has to be a, a better way. And so his best man at his wedding, his best friend, happened to be a guy who was a program designer for Fortune 500 companies, worked for a company that handled their websites and such. And this was just a brand-new business back in those days. Yeah. And so my son asked his friend if he could design something online that would be kind of what we're doing on with paper at that point, you know, faxes and such. And the guy said, sure, no problem at all. So he put together this thing online in 1999, which was the very first iteration of what became Turning Peaks. It was just, it was just for my coaches and, and myself so we could do a better job of communicating with our clients. And then in 2000, just a few months later, actually, we decided, man, this thing is really doing well. We, we, you know, our, this guy came up with a great system. So we decided to take it public. And so we opened up anybody that wanted to, to subscribe to it, which weren't very many people at first, but it caught on about 2003, four, it began to catch on. And, and it was a really steep curve after that point, lots of people becoming uh, users of the, of the system. So it, it did a great job once we got it going, but it, it came about just simply because I wanted to be a, my son wanted me to be able to communicate with our clients better than we were. Now it's like the go-to de facto system for coaches to communicate with their athletes, like coaches around the world whose athletes are local or in other cities or states or countries. I mean, and then on the flip side, as an athlete, I mean, I've been using it since I started, my coach got me on Training Peaks to start logging my workouts and communicate with me. And all the programs are so turnkey, and they just like go into your uh, into uh -huh. your Training Peaks dashboard. Yeah, it's, it's gone through a long iteration, a long long process of changing over the years. When it started out, you know, 1999 and 2000, there were probably only about four functions on the entire page. You know, these four buttons you could push, and it was very simple. It was just a calendar. The coach typed in what the workouts were going to be. The athlete, when they got done with the workout, would type in what they had done, and they would enter the data from, you know, from manually from their device, heart rate monitor, whatever it was. Right. And uh, so it was very, very basic, nothing more than a calendar. And now we've got, I don't know, hundreds of features and functions and all kinds of things. We can download so many different devices that uh, I, have, I can't keep up with it anymore. There's so much stuff anymore. It's just really amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that you know, my Garmin watch sinks into it and Zwift sinks into it. And I feel like I'm like preaching to the choir. Like I know my listeners who are athletes are like, all right, like we, we all use training peaks. We get it. I also interviewed your son, Dirk, and we talk about all the bells and whistles and do a much deeper dive into training peaks. Yeah, that, that probably is a good idea. He, he runs the business you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I really don't get involved in the company really at all. I, all I do is smile and shake hands that's that's my extent of my business operation <laughs> yeah it's always been that way so Dirk, Dirk really is the guy who knows you know the system really well so you're still writing and even though you're not involved so much in the day-to-day -day of training peaks you have a new book coming out ride inside 
this is an idea I came up with just over a year ago. So this is long before the pandemic. I know people think I do, I'm doing this because of this pandemic and people riding indoors, but we had no idea there was going to be a pandemic when I came up with the ideas more than a year ago. I realized, you know, I can see indoor cycling becoming uh, more popular mm-hmm. and uh, nobody had written a book on it. So it was, just, it was like uh, a book waiting to be written. And so we started working on it. We went, it's been one of the longest books I've ever written as far as time to, to do it. It's been a very, very long process. We just, in fact, I just got the forward today from the person who wrote forward for the book, which is the last thing you get when you write a book. So it's all done. All the pieces are there now. And it's going to go to the, to the publisher here real soon. We're down to the last few bits and pieces of illustrations and such, such as that. That's exciting. Yeah, it is. It's always kind of fun to see the book come to fruition. So it's about to go. I, I expect to see it on the market. Probably it'll be late August by the time we get everything put together, get it to the publisher. So talk to me about some of the core principles or tenets of the book. Yeah, it's, it's really about, you know, the first question, the answer is why would you want to ride indoors? That question is being answered quite vividly right now with the pandemic. We've got something like a half a million people have been have done uh, races on Zwift this year since the pandemic. So it's like it's become uh, just gigantic number of people who are riding indoors. So there's no, no longer have to answer the question, why would you ride indoors? Everybody knows why now. Yeah. So we start off with that and then we take it into what's different about riding indoors versus riding outdoors, physiology sort of stuff. And we get into the equipment that you use indoors. And that bleeds us then into the apps that can be used like Zwift or others or many others we talk about also how you can use those and how to make the best use of them and then workouts you can do uh, on an indoor trainer so it, it kind of runs the gamut from just why should you do it to down to the nuts and bolts of how you do it yeah i have a compu trainer which huh? i know is not even being made or manufactured anymore <laughs> I have, I got it a few, I got it when I started training. And one of the things that my coach at the time said was that like having a compu trainer, I live in New York, so it's not always warm outside. And even when it is warm outside, like it's really, really been a great tool for my training on so many levels. It's a game changing. A compu trainer was way ahead of its time. It came out uh, late seventies when it came out. And they were doing things that nobody dreamed of up to that point. Uh, and they lasted until the early 2000s. And they just didn't keep up with the changes in technology that were going on. And uh, finally dropped out of, the, out of the market. But they were, that, that, that was my first trainer also. My first indoor trainer was CompuTrainer. I used it for decades, a long, long time. I, yeah. I, I, I may still have it someplace in my garage or I've kind of forgotten actually. They had all the graphics, like the Ironman races. Yeah. And right. I mean, you know, you were like on your computer and then there were all these like indoor studios that started popping up that were using them. Right. I mean. Yeah, it's, it, it was a really a, quite an amazing device for, for the time. And uh, now it's gone way beyond that. It's, there, it's multiple, multiple examples of things you can do right now that CompuTrainer never even dreamed of. Yeah. I was kind of bummed when they no longer were manufacturing CompuTrainers and it was kind of yeah. dumb. But there were also at that same time, like you said, you know, there was Trainer Road, there was Zwift, there, there was another program I was using. I love Zwift though. I'm like yeah. all in on Zwift and Watopia. <laughs> okay. One thing I I wonder, you know, as I'm cycling indoors all the time, and I'm just starting to get outdoors now in New York City, even though it's mostly because I didn't want to get COVID and I was nervous about being exposed to people and, you know, riding in New York City. It's it's not like there's wide open roads and you can like pass someone with 60 feet in between you. And I like riding indoors. I really do. I enjoy it. I like watching TV or watching being on Zwift and just like doing other things, which I'm sure is bad, but I'm on my trainer. I'm moving. I'm sweating. So it's good. But I always wonder if I should get my bike adjusted differently if I'm committed to being indoors for like six or seven months, you know, fitted differently or obviously you know, you have to change out your back, like be aware of your tires wearing down differently, sure. right? Like yeah. what are some things to think about? Well, you really don't have to change the bike fit. As long as I, I'm assuming you're using the, your road bike on the trainer. 
don't need to change that. In fact, probably you want to keep it as close as you can to the road setup because it's going to be, you're going to be racing on the road, I assume, someday, yes, hopefully. eventually, yeah. So you want to be, you want your body to be adapted to that. So the, the equipment doesn't need to be changed, but quite honestly, you have to change the way you pedal. That has to change. Okay. The indoor trainer just isn't the same. The bike doesn't respond the same way to an indoor trainer as it does to the road. For example, the more basic your indoor trainer is, the more challenging it is to, uh, to keep the pedals turning at an even effort, right. if, if you will. I'll explain that. When you pedal on the road, when your foot is at nine o'clock and the other foot is at six o'clock, top and bottom of the pedal stroke, there's no force being applied to the pedal. There's so much momentum that that's not a problem. You're still going to move. On an indoor trainer, when your feet are, or you're pedaling and your feet are 12 o'clock and six o'clock, the back wheel is actually slowing down immediately. And so you, the problem is that you become very inefficient because you can't keep the back wheel turning as you, you normally would do on the road. So you're less efficient indoors. You waste more energy indoors. So you, basically you get more tired when you ride indoors and do the same workout than if you were outdoors. So what the manufacturers have done about that is they put a flywheel into most of the devices you buy anymore. Right. And... Uh, what that does is it overcomes this problem of this 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock loss of, of motion, this momentum loss. And so consequently, the wheel continues to turn, and you don't have this gigantic loss of economy, although it's slightly lost. But now we're talking about, you know, tenths of 1% as opposed to 10 to 15% sort of things. So if you're riding one of the old trainers that doesn't have a flywheel, then you've got to work on uh, becoming more efficient and riding indoors. And you do that by slightly lowering your heel as you come up through the 12 o'clock position by slightly i mean like a half inch okay you know a centimeter not very much just just barely drop your heel as you hit 12 o'clock so the heel is slightly below the ball of your foot okay and when you do that what it what it happens is you wind up being able to apply force earlier in the pedal stroke at one o'clock most people when they're new to the sport don't apply force to the pedal until about 2 30 if you can imagine the pedal stroke being like a clock. Yeah. So at 2.30, they apply force. And so that's why they're called, you know, they pedal in, in what's called squares. They're just pushing the pedals up and down. They're not really making circles. Good cyclists, they begin to apply force to the pedal even before 12 o'clock. They're already starting to make a move, which applies force to the pedal forward. And the way you do that is to get your heel just slightly below the ball of the foot when you hit 12 o'clock. And then at 6 o'clock, you do just the opposite. You raise your heel just slightly. So we've got this, these, your feet are moving just slightly up and down as you're pedaling the bike. And that will make you a, a more efficient indoors if you have the old style uh, machine. And that will also cross over to outdoors. You'll become more efficient outdoors because of having learned to do that indoors. So there's benefits from, from riding indoors also. And do you feel like when you're, when you're riding indoors, you can build more strength in your cycling, not as opposed to outdoors? I think you can build more endurance. More endurance can, indoors. Yeah, I don't yeah. think you necessarily build more strength. It's really called force. Force is the, the amount of pressure you place on the pedal and the downstroke. That's not going to change. That's going to stay the same. Uh, you can artificially make it harder by increasing the resistance on the back wheel, which would be like going up a hill somewhat. Right. So you can, you can do things to encourage greater force production, which will make you stronger. But you can do the same thing outdoors. You can simply ride hills and you'll get the same benefit, actually a better benefit, because you really are going up. You're fighting gravity outdoors. You're not fighting gravity indoors. Right. You're simply fighting friction indoors. So it gets rather complicated when you get into all the physics of this whole thing. But bottom line is turning indoors has got the potential to make you a better rider outdoors in some ways. Excellent. And you talk about that in your book. Right. I was reading on your blog, which I thought was so interesting, was muscular force training for triathletes uh, and all athletes. So talk to me a little bit about that philosophy that you use. Yeah, sure. Uh, movement in sport, let's just talk about triathlons, swim, bike, and run. So movement in those three sports depends on the application of force to, uh, to something which is resisting your movement. So, for example, in, uh, in swimming, you're applying force to the water. You're pushing, you're catching the water. Remember the, the term we always use is catch, this idea that you're putting your hand in the water in front of your body with your palm facing backwards, not down, by the way, but backwards, and you're pulling against the water. So that requires force. Your muscles have to be able to pull. If, you're, if, you're, if you have weak muscles, like the lats, for example, are weak, 
you'll have a hard time pulling yourself through the water. You'll never get any faster if, you, if you're really, really weak in the lats. When you're on your bike, you have to be able to apply force to the pedal in a downward motion. You just talked about that. It's the same thing. You've got to be able to apply force to the muscles that drive the hips, knees, and ankles. And that requires, again, muscular force. If you're weak in those muscles, you'll never be a powerful rider. You'll never be able to go fast on a bike simply because you just don't have the, the muscular force to be able to, to drive the pedal down. Same thing for running. Now we're trying to apply force against the ground. So that is mostly the calf muscle, a little bit of the hamstring, and also the glutes working there also. What we're trying to do is to drive your body forward by pushing against the ground behind us. And so we've got that is the one key, which is the muscular side of this. The other side of the, the equation really is cadence for all three sports. Cadence means how fast you're, 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 how many strokes you can take per minute, how many pedal strokes you can take per minute, how many running uh, strides you can take per minute. That if, it, if that is high and your force is high, you have lots of power. So, and power is the bottom line. Right. All sports, even, even if you don't have a power meter, you're still working with power. Power is what makes you go forward in all three sports. And so all we're talking about here is how can you maximize one aspect of that, which is force. And so that brings us into this whole discussion of how can you increase your force. And so is that through actually increasing your force sports specifically or increasing your force by strength training and doing core work or both? It can be done both ways. You can, for example, lift weights. That's a very common way of improving force. Let's just take one example. You could do squats with a heavy barbell, and that would has the potential to increase your power on the bike. In other words, the force you can apply to the pedal as you push the pedal down. It also allows you to become more powerful when you run because you have to extend your knee and ankle when you run. It's the same issue. Extension of the hip, knee, and ankle is what the squat is, is doing. And so you can do it that way, or you can do it sport specifically. So, for example, on the bike, we could go to a, after warming up, we could go to a hill which is rather short and steep. Let's say it's a hill which is it's only going to take you oh, eight pedal strokes to get to the top. And what you're going to do is you're going to come to the bottom of the hill, slow down to almost to a stop with the gear in your big chain ring and then in the rear derailleur in a, in a relatively high gear also like a, a 15 or 16. And then after coming to almost complete stop, you pedal up the bike, staying seated, don't get, don't stand up, stay seated and drive the pedals down going up the hill. It's a, it's like doing squats on a bicycle. It's the same thing. But what the athlete has to realize is this is also a high risk workout. There's a high reward that comes out of this. You become more forceful, therefore you become more powerful, therefore you can become more, become faster. But the downside is whenever the, reward is high the risk is also high so the risk now is that you'll injure your your knees and right. that will basically put you out of sport for some period of time until you heal up so you've got to be very very careful with that sort of thing but but it can be done you do the same thing with running on a hill you can do the same thing with swimming i used to coach master swimming and i would have my swimmers one day a week bring them a sweatshirt uh, or a t-shirt heavy t-shirt to the pool with them and we'd swim 25s with a t-shirt on or a sweatshirt on because that would cause more drag. And so you had to apply more force to the water to pull yourself through it. So it was just a way of becoming more, developing more force in a sport-specific way without necessarily going to the weight room. That's super helpful. How are you advising athletes on the current climate of sports and training to continue training, you know, their new normal. Do you have advice on how to wrap your head around it, maybe setting new goals? Basically, you know, 2020, if this whole year feels like a preseason. Yeah, it's just a, a difficult time for everybody. I'm, I'm right now doing free clinics for triathlon clubs um, around the world. I just did one last night for the LA Triathlon Club and did one yesterday morning for North Dorset Triathlon Club in England and so forth. So I've been doing these because I'm trying to help people stay involved in the sport even though there are no races so i talk to them about what you should be doing right now what can you do to maintain your base fitness which is really all we need to worry about right now we're not getting ready for a race right now right we just need to be, have good base fitness so i talked about those things with them and some of those things we've already touched on for example we talked about force just now and you know i talked to the clubs about that also they can do things to improve their force development so when they come back to 
to ready to start training again to race. They haven't lost all their muscular force. And, then, and there are other things, too. Like what we talked about also just a while ago, the 80-20 idea, and that this whole idea of training easy is critical. So I talked about them with that. Uh, talked about the, to, to these clubs about that idea of training easy, like five days out of seven. If you train seven days a week, five of them ought to be easy. Okay. And the two hard, the two hard days are very right, right now are just very short intervals, like uh, thirty seconds on, thirty seconds off, done six, eight, ten times, something like that. At a very high effort on a ten scale, would be like a nine. So it's a very high effort that can be done bike or run, for example. And then also doing a longer session, about twenty minutes once a week in each of those two sports which is done at about your three or four zone if you're using a heart rate monitor. And so that's not going anaerobic, it's staying aerobic, but it's hard enough that going for about 20 minutes is, is challenging. Uh, you can break that up into intervals. It could be done like four times five minutes or three times seven minutes or two times 10 minutes or one times 20 minutes, whatever they want to do. But the idea is to do both of those things in each of those two sports every week. So that's having, that is having um, two workouts a week, which are hard. And you can combine those intervals into one workout. You could warm up for 15, 20 minutes, do the 30-second intervals, recover for, for five minutes, and then do the 20-second intervals, and then do a long cool down. And it becomes a, a, a challenging workout, uh, kind of short and fun, gets to the point. But uh, it would be very effective for helping to maintain fitness during this period of time we're in right now. This period of time is really about maintaining fitness. And I guess we don't, as athletes, when there are races, we really don't have the luxury of taking the time to do these things. So I guess right. the sad part is that there aren't races, but we could look at it as an opportunity to really get strong so that when we do come back, we come back even stronger. Exactly right. Yeah, this, this is definitely an opportunity time. And we just need to know how to take care of it, how to take advantage of it. The key to making this work is the athlete has to be dedicated. It takes persistence. It takes uh, consistency. And it takes patience. And if the athlete is lacking in those three things, they're going to have a hard time getting through this period of time. So, so that's, that's what I was talking to the clubs about. Their, their role, as I see it right now, is to keep their members involved. Right. And maintain community. Yeah. Encourage them to stay involved in the sport. Yeah. And so when do you think like, when do you think we're going to come back to racing? Do you think 2021 or I guess yeah. when and how? Stuff I'm reading right now is suggesting that we're probably going to have a second wave about late August, September, October. We're going to go through another wave just like we went through, and it could be even worse than the first one. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go into lockdown again, uh, not being able to do things in groups. It's going to be much the same situation. Yeah. And so I, I – with that in mind, I've really got strong doubts that we'll see any, there'll be no racing this year. Let me put it that way. No racing this year. Yeah. Spring of next year is right now possibility, but I would say it's questionable right now at this point. Yeah. I I agree with you. I read USAT. I'm sure you read it also. They sent out like a 40 page (laughs) book on how they envision coming back to racing. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. You know, I, I think triathlon as a sport, will have a way better shot of surviving than the running. Yes, it will. Groups are the issue. Yeah, in, in running and, and cycling also, looking at a, a lot of people uh, in close proximity to each other for the entire race, whereas in triathlon, by the time, you know, the swim is really probably a non-entity when it comes to COVID, I would think. Yeah. I, don't, I haven't really never read any research on that, but I, I would see water as being a a good place for this to be I, spread. I did read some, I did read a little bit about it. And, you know, as long, I think, you know, what I was reading was that obviously in the pool, the chlorine kills all germs, but it's not so much about the chlorine. It's more like being on top of each other. If you're not breathing exactly. into the chlorine or you breathe on someone. Exactly. So I think in the open water, we would be fine. Yeah. And then when we go into triathlon or into the bike, rather, we're talking about, a non-drafting situation right so we've got separation again between people and by the time you're to the run in triathlon typically people are very well spread out so it doesn't become really an issue like in running where you've got people remaining in packs or in cycling remaining in packs also until the end of the race yeah 
some of the races I've done have been rolling starts. So I feel like that will be the success for triathlon is like just have a longer distance. I'm sure the price of racing will go up because they won't be able to have as many people racing. I don't know. This is my marketing side, thinking about how the racing industry is going to come back so I could race. Yeah, it could be right. That that would make sense that the price of, of entry fees would go up if you're going to have fewer entries. Yeah. But I think it'll be worth it, you know, because as an athlete, what I love about the sport is is racing. It's not the only thing I love about the sport. I really like the training too. Yeah. There's just something about going somewhere and meeting a group of people that all share the same passion that you have. You talk a lot about racing, aging, and how to stay fast as you get older or get faster as you get older. Uh-huh. And this is something that I actually had no idea about until the last five years. So (laughs) I am starting to feel 48, not because I am 48, but because my running has slowed down so much. And Mm. it's like I was lucky for 45 years. I was able to like just do whatever and not think about it. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about your theory on racing and aging. As athletes age, there's that's something which is going to happen to, to all of us. You can't stop the loss of, for example, talking physiological terms, you can't stop the loss of VO2 max, aerobic capacity. That is going to decline. It's not the only thing, but it's the one everybody's probably most familiar with. That is going to decline over time. And, you know, for your next door neighbor who doesn't do anything at all for exercise, it's a really rapid loss of VO2 max for that person, it's going to be, you know, it's dropping something like, like, uh, I forgot the numbers on this, but let's say 1% per year or something like that. So over a decade, they're losing 10% and so forth. Whereas for the athlete who stays active, uh, they can slow that down to about half that rate, but there's still going to be a loss of VO2 max and other physiological variables also with aging. We, we can slow it down. We can't stop it. We can temporarily reverse it by changing our training. If we've been training in a way that is not conducive to maintaining VO2 max, we can actually reverse it and increase VO2 max for a short period of time. But that's not going to last forever. That's going to eventually hit the, the point at which you can no longer make gains. It's going to start dropping again. But we can keep it from dropping as fast is, is really the whole idea. And the key to that really is intensity in your training what we tend to do as we get older is we tend to move away from from intensity we tend to opt more for long slow distance we start doing become more concerned with miles instead of with how much power we're putting out or how fast we're going and that becomes the focus of our training is miles and that, that's the shift that takes place typically as I, I saw that happening to me in my 60s, I began to realize I was starting to move away from intensity and starting to do a lot more mileage-oriented training. And so um, I, be- I changed that, and that was where the, the idea for the book came from, really, was part- partly that. But that that's really the key. The bottom line for the book is you can't stop doing high-intensity training. You must continue it. You just have to be smarter about how you do it because the risk of injury becomes greater as you get older. For the runners, for example, knees shins, Achilles, plantar fascia, stress fractures, and so forth. The risk of all these things increases as you do high intensity and as we get older. So you've got to get a lot smarter about how to, you can't keep turning like you did when you were 20 years old. It just won't work that way anymore. When I was 20 years old in college, I could do anything I wanted. I could do five hard workouts a week, no problem whatsoever, and come back and do it again the next week. In fact, we did that in track and field. That's about all we did was killer workouts every day for five days a week. Um, now I'm in, you know, when I got into my 50s, I can no longer do that. I couldn't do, you know, five days a week of anaerobic endurance type workouts. I had to throw in some respirators in there. I could still do hard workouts, but I had to get a lot smarter. And that's really what it's all about. And that's fast your book, six. Fast After 50. Yeah, that's, that's the bottom line. Yeah, there's a couple more things that I get I get into in the book, but but that's the really the bottom line is you've got to be smarter about your training and here are the things that will help you to maintain or perhaps even temporarily reverse 
the losses of fitness. What were you training for before races were canceled? Did you have any races on the horizon for 2020? No, I had, I had actually stopped racing in 2014. I had a bad accident in 2014, bike accident, uh, several broken bones, concussion, and, and blood clots in both legs, and problems that can, stayed with me for six months afterwards. And so I was I, I lost basically a year of training. And then my business life changed also. I started traveling a lot more for training peaks, doing coaches seminars around the world. And I was doing, you know, I was gone for 10 days every month doing seminars. So it became pointless to try to get into race shape. So I just finally quit. And now, you know, now I've got all kinds of time. Uh, (laughs) Nothing more to go to, but there's no races. It's kind of like I've lost out on both things now. But you're still running and cycling and swimming. You're just not racing. I'm not racing at all. No, I haven't raced, as I said, in years. Yeah. Uh, I would like to race again, but it just remains to be seen what happens with the way the world happens here in the coming few months and the way my you know, my involvement with the business happens also in the next few months. Yeah, you're more on the coaching, like coach the coaches. You And also you write a lot of the content and articles for Training Peaks, although there's a, there's a lot of different writers that I've... I'm just one of the writers. There are many, many, many writers. But my job really is to help train coaches and how to how to make the best use of the uh, software. I've been doing that since 2014. So when I came back from my crash, that's what I started doing was traveling around the world with other people, other people from Training Peaks. And we would do, two or three of us would do these coach seminars on how to use Training Peaks effectively. And that's lasted just up until the COVID thing all started also. Crazy. How are you feeling? Are you feeling better from 2014? Like, have you healed or... I'm great. No problems whatsoever. Fitness is coming back right now. Fitness is coming back great. Best fitness I've had in years because I've got no interruptions at all. You know, I can't travel. I've got no nothing going on that takes the place of my training. So I'm having a great time. Are you also on Swift or are you on are you on Ruby? Are you on all of them? Checking them out? You know, I don't have to. I live in where I live in northern Arizona. It's in it's endless summer here. It's endless summer. I know. Endless my, summer. Is there anything like mindset or tips and advice or anything? I know you have a lot of quotes that you have been quoted for saying. If there's anything you want to say to athletes listening or maybe people who, who maybe they're not athletes yet. Maybe they're, they're curious. They're tri-curious. <laughs> well, I would add one just last comment, that, especially for triathletes, that I found with them. One of the biggest problems triathletes have is they don't get nearly enough sleep. And that's, that's when fitness takes place is during sleep, hard workouts. You don't really become more fit per se from doing the workout. In other words, at the end of a workout, you're not more fit than you were to start the workout. You're actually kind of run down and tired. But when you sleep that night, if you get enough sleep, now you'll realize the fitness. Triathletes, but you need to get getting somewhere around seven plus hours and sleep per night. And triathletes are terrible at that. They've got a four o'clock. You got to get up at four thirty in the morning to make it to the pool for the master swim at five thirty or whatever it is. So they do that. Then they go to work and they put in an eight or nine hour day. They come home. They got to get another workout when they get home. Spend some time with the kids, the family. Check email, watch TV a little bit, and they're in bed by eleven o'clock. And then next next morning they're up again at four thirty and ready to go again. It's like five and a half hours sleep a night. Just is not going to hack it. Yeah. Right now, people should be getting plenty of sleep. But when you get back to normal life again, that must be what you're focused on, getting enough sleep. That's great advice. I think it's uh, unanimous across the board is sleep is just so important. Right. We just don't get enough. Yeah. This was really awesome, especially because I did read your, your book, The Triathlete's Training Bible. It was one of my first books that I read. And I've been using Training Peaks for a really long time, and I'm a huge fan. So thank you so much for your time. Great, Marnie. Thank you very much for asking me. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, Sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, 
and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com. And let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out.